Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 22 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievlin. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's a lot of ugly shit out there, kid. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So here we are uh, in the studio on St. Claude uh, today recording. And uh, if you could sit here with us, uh, which we've had some studio guests, uh, if you could sit here with us, you would see that you're surrounded by essentially an ocean of paper. And there's a lot of printer paper, there's historical paper here, and there's books here, and there's not only that, but there's also print blocks, and there's, there's letter presses, and there's printing equipment, and there's binding equipment, and there's things to make books, and there's things to make posters, and there's things to make prints, and there's things to make business cards, and there's cutters and trimmers and scissors. And, and there's all sorts of crazy little machines and things, all related mostly to print and bookmaking. Absolutely. Amongst all of the crap, but I can't say it's crap, because as a good friend of mine once said, Joseph, the difference between you and a hoarder is that you have good taste. So I think I have some decent taste. It's sort of bibliophilia to a completely different extreme, I suppose. I mean, I think you've collected more paper than you'll ever be able to use before you die already. And I'm sure I, you're going to collect some more. I agree. I agree. <laughs> if you include the Oracle, then absolutely. Uh, so amongst all of that that I named, uh, I actually am the proud owner of four mimeograph machines here. I have four more in a cabinet under the stairs at my mom's house in Cleveland, Ohio. My first memory of Mimeo. Okay, is, yeah, well. is actually is actually when uh, my aunt, when my mom and dad were working, my aunt who was a school teacher, uh, a PSR teacher at yeah. St. Stanislaus High School in Cleveland, Ohio, and she would have her office, and I remember her having mimeograph masters, and I remember there being a mimeograph machine in the center of her office. Yeah, well, I mean, I remember my, all my worksheets being mimeos when when I was when I was younger, and it had that great smell to it. Yeah, it's got a it's got a certain little uh, type of uh, spirit, you know. So, to make a little distinction, there there is there is the mimeograph process, and within the mimeograph process, there are different types of machines that print. So yeah, there's yeah. There's gestetners, which do a two-drum uh, print, so it's like an inking drum and an oppression drum. And then there's a single-drum AB Dick, which is the standard that they had in a lot of uh, uh, schools and businesses. Uh, and then there's spirit duplicators, which are basically the ones that they would use uh, in schools uh, because the process was quicker and easier to clean up. And it was just one color. It was one color. It's yeah. just like a like a like a violet purple usually. Yeah, that kind of that purple bleed. weird. And when the masters were <laughs> and when the masters got old, the copies would bleed a little. Yeah, so, they were always a little not so there, clear. Yeah, there's this like haze kind of around the letters, you know. It has its own type of interesting aesthetic to it. It has its own interesting aesthetic. It's it's dated in a period of time. Uh, this is pre photocopier machines. Now yeah. they had photocopy machines. But they were expensive. So people just didn't have so them. Schools didn't, didn't have them because they were just too expensive. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so a year ago, I went on a little quest during Dada 100. And there's going to be a, more about that specifically uh, later on another episode. Well, and we but talked about it a little, before, a little before in Uruguay and Dada. And then sure. I think we talked about it a little bit with the, what we're doing, what, the, the episode, episode 19, 19. Uh, where we're talking about 
what you had going on. Yeah. So one of the things that I did when I was over there was I got to go uh, to Amelo, Netherlands. And I stayed in Hangelo, Hangelo, and I went to Amelo. Okay, Amelo. I said Amelo, and they said it's Amelo and Hangelo, which I'm not even pronouncing correctly. It's in the east. It's in the eastern part of the Netherlands. It's in what's considered the Bible Belt of the Netherlands. And there's a gentleman there named Erwin Block, who has been collecting mimeos since he was a child, and he tried to make his own printing presses, and he has pictures <laughs> of these like drums and things that he would try to make, and then. And then he got really into collecting mimeograph machines. Now, let me explain this. We'll put some photos on the, on the, the piece. We'll, well put some photos yeah, on the and we'll put this up again, but I think we had the video of y'all printing the Dada posters. We did. And something. we'll put that up again. Yeah. yeah, we can put that up again. So Irwin is in this puzzle factory, this old factory. And we're talking like in a, in a development. A what factory? You okay. Said? Okay. <laughs> so I know it's weird. It's crazy. It's weird. There's a PLZ above the door, which meant puzzles, and uh, and uh, or some sort of puzzle company. Uh, their their logo. Yeah. We couldn't we couldn't spell out puzzle. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't uh, know. But it was, but it's yeah, but it's like, just like like jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, maybe it's PZL PZL yeah PZL. And it's a, but it was like jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. So it was a, it was it was a it was a print shop where they had uh, offset presses and die cutters. So what they would do is they would get these giant die these giant dies made, okay, Mas- master dies. Okay, oh, wow. Is there are there people who collect vintage jigsaw puzzles? I bet there are. I bet there are. Now I never sure. even thought of that before, but now that seems like a whole interesting. They had area a bunch of them up in there. Yeah. They, had, they had a bunch of uh, they had a in the in the uh, the man's office where he had his uh, one of his offices. The guy who ran the whole puzzle factory, he had built a brand new factory like right down the street. And it was like it was like fifty times as big. So he he took he took and and turned a little tiny factory. But we're talking if if we're we're right now, folks, we're in about ten hundred ten hundred. I'm I'm, I'm up go or fiving that. Uh, <laughs> we're 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 in uh, about a thousand square foot space, maybe a little bit bigger. And we're talking about this is like a warehouse that was probably like ten easily ten thousand square foot warehouse. Okay. So yeah. Irwin has a quarter of that, about twenty five hundred or yeah, about twenty five hundred square feet. More no more than I have to say more than that. It's probably more like five thousand square feet. So that would make this about twenty thousand square foot warehouse. Got about five thousand square feet. So how many how many Mimeo machines does five, he have in there? Over over five hundred Mimeographs. I'm wow. sure at, at this point. Because he's been still collecting, the most probably in one place of anywhere in the world, I would imagine. He's been collecting, and so and so every time he tells me he's on a new trip, he's like, you know, he'll he'll message me and say like, going to Swiss, getting two more Mimeos, four sixty six, a three twenty or whatever, you know, he'll tell me yeah, which models. Yeah. He just recently found a uh, a very very rare model, a rare model. He found like an A two model that prints like super wide. Prints like thirteen by nineteen. You know? Wow, really? Yeah, it prints oh, a giant. Man, you po- could do some cool shit with post, that. Poster size, <laughs> poster size mimeos, uh, just in what you know. So, so, so what Irwin's done, and this is very fascinating. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about a few other people that are doing some things. Okay, because there's Agnes and Opie doing their little mimeograph shop up in. You know, this is some super underground, above ground kind of stuff in Paris. Uh-huh. And Irwin's always going over there and outfitting them and helping them work through their machines. And they're making these gorgeous books, all Mimeo, full Mimeo books. 
and they're doing some amazing work where you know they're printing oversized sheets with one graphic and then they're even taking like making handmade books and putting like mimeograph printed board like on top mm-hmm. of the boards mm-hmm. and gluing them you know so they're doing stuff and then there's uh then there's luca and john up in berlin who are doing some stuff out of inkwell where they had uh they have mimeograph machine and they used to have a duplo which is like the europe different type of european version of risograph oh, okay. and then there's a whole yeah, yeah. there's the whole risograph thing too which is which is still alive which is like the risograph thing is like the current version so, sort of of this sort of like diy setup you know uh, why, why is it that risograph is stuck on a little more well, here's the cool thing about Riso. The thing about Riso is that you basically have a different cartridge for every, you have different drum for, for every, every color. color. Yeah. And so you can, instead of doing a four color machine, a digital print machine, you know, you can go in and you can put in a hot pink or you can put in a silver or you can put in a black. So it takes photocopier technology up to a lot of them up to 11 by yeah, 17, yeah. 12 by 18. So it has that scanner on top that can do the 12 by 18 scan, 11 by 17 scans. And then it just takes that and takes transfers that image right to a plate, right to a right to a stencil, and the stencil goes on the drum, and then you can you print do a color and do time. a color at a time. But it, so the, is the advantage of that it's got more depth because you're like overlaying the colors, or you're you're doing color separations. So Irwin oh. has figured out this really crazy system with his printer, his his like Epson printer that he has over over in a in a, his his office, and the funny thing about it is that. You've got to have, you've got to, he's got to do uh, his printouts and then he has to, he has to take the images and he has to like cut them out and rotate them at a 45 degree angle. He has to do something really, really tricky when he puts his prints, uh-huh. when he puts his prints together so that, so that he can make the masters so that the half tones match up. Okay. He's got okay. to do, he's got to okay. do this weird trick with his prints. Cause it won't do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if you just do it straight up, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, and then he has to figure out like each color, his color separations that way, and he puts a little code at the bottom of each print, so he knows which ones which. Like you a know. little register at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just says like Gestetner blue, Gestetner red, Gestetner yellow. <laughs> Gestetner, yeah. It's pretty cool. So, so you know this this is this is sort of like fun to talk about this because I've had so much information wrapped up in my mind about mimeograph but but the reason that this is this is uh this is a particular episode and there this again is a, a first of a large part uh, a larger story but i've been i've been thinking a lot about trying to make sure that i go out and talk to some of these guys that were the avant-garde and the leaders of the mimeograph army you so know, these guys maybe like, you need to explain a little i don't know that everyone knows the particular okay kind of historical spot that Mimeo had in the underground in the U.S. particularly. Okay. I, don't, I don't want to say too much, but well, I, I, I know do you, have to give I you know the we intro. we don't want to give away okay. too much from the interview. That's but, fine. Yeah. But we have a special interview for you, and we're going we're gonna to try to get a few more, few more voices on it. So, basically, you know, back... In as late as the fifties and later, I uh, uh, basically like I have learned that the presses were under control of the union. Yeah, you know, and in order to get your book printed, the presses were control of the union even in the Netherlands, even as late as the seventies. 
where the printing presses where if you wanted a print job, you had to go to the union, like a union shop to get it printed. And that they controlled the 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 the, the uses of the presses to only pr- printers. Yeah. So yeah. you couldn't really just well, go and print to, your own book. We also have to keep in mind because we forget now how expensive printing was to do that it kind was of very expensive, very expensive. So like you know, think about the way that even the ro- the roles that you know these publishers and influential people in, in like you know Gertrude Stein playing the role as, yeah. as as a as a a publisher a publisher, but but more of like a, a backer, a funder, you know? And there was all these, this, it was, it was difficult to get your work done and like, and, and, or get your work put out there and printed in a sort of like uh, a quick and easy, a quick and easy system. Right. I want to read this uh, piece, Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, let me see. I'm going to come back to it in a second. And what it is, is a letter uh, from um, uh, a letter uh, from um, Edison to the League of Nations. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, about the importance of the mimeograph and what it could specifically do was this. You could have multilingual polyglot translators who could all be transcribing in from a language that they hear at the League of Nations into another language so they would know, like we would need to transcribe, you know, this this much stuff into English, yeah. Because yeah. there's people who wanted to read in English. We wanted so much could be would be transcribed from German to French. They would have people who knew how to do this, and what they could do is they could be transcribing the 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 essentially like they were they were uh, court like court reporters, yeah, yeah. transcriptionists. I guess. Well, there's what's the other name for it? Stenographer, right? So they would transcribe and they would and they would translate into another language mm-hmm. and then those ma- th- they could do it on a master sheet and those masters could be immediately run Just off run right and through the yeah think about yeah that's Google Translate he, th- like a hundred yeah. years yeah. before yeah. so that was his argument to like the like part like that specific venue for the importance of like a way that mimeograph could be used I find that to be extremely significant like that sort of cool thing uh, let's see if I can pull it up but. What happened is in mimeographs have been around since essentially the 1800s, okay, 1880s, 1890s, the cyclo style and the early, early, earliest forms that were more like little screen printing things. They were like more like serography, you know, they weren't like, they weren't, they were a little different. They weren't the mimeograph as we, as we. But isn't it also, well, I'm not to sidetrack you, but wasn't the ubiquity of the typewriter pretty important to? In making Mimeo more important or more easy to use, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I maybe that seems obvious, but I don't know that people people understand that necessarily, right? You don't have to set type anymore. Well, you don't have to set type. Yeah. You don't. Sorry. You know, sorry. Yeah. I, 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 even you even don't have to set type anymore. You, so I what mean, you could do even is even linotype is like. I mean, you know. Yeah. Great. That's and space to have uh, a typewriter and a Mimeo. Is not a lot of space compared to other printing methods of the time, right? right? Well, okay. So a lot of times people don't know this. When you look at your typewriter at home and you see there's a little switch on it and there's a little lever on the, on the usually the right side and it's a red or white or blue. What that meant was that was what was ribbon blue, red correction, and white meant the correction ribbon would not raise. Yeah. So 
that was for putting a stencil in and for typing a mimeograph. Yeah, yeah. A mimeograph stencil. So the mimeos were fairly popular in the 20s and 30s, a lot for business purposes and form letters and stuff like that. And the earliest, actually, the Stettner Company newsletters, and I'm going to send you, I'm going to give you some images. This time. <laughs> it's insane. They were doing four color and six and, four, and five color and six color and seven color mimeograph printing wow. in the 30s. Okay. In the 30s? In the 30s. <laughs> I, have, I have evidence of it. It's gorgeous. Wow. It's insane. Insane. And Irwin has the entire collection of the Gestetner families, all the mimeograph, you know, all the company, yeah, uh, the yeah. company newsletters, you know. And they, the earliest stuff is insanely, insane, insane. So, okay. So by the time that these guys got around and the counterculture revolution sort of kicked off and like, you know, and they, in the late, it really, it's like kind of all started popping up in the late fifties and the early sixties. I've got some books to read. Okay. I've read a few books, but I have a few more books to read, (laughs) but I've just went out and sort of dug in the earth and tried to do this stuff. So they would start using the mimeograph, you know, as John said, someone's uncle or somebody had one in the basement and you get a case of beer and a bunch of paper and some ink and some stencils. And by the morning you had 250 books or 150 books. And that was the run. That was, that was it. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, then they, then they started putting out these, these really particular types of magazines, you know, that were these like, and it was just a run. They would just do a run and that was it. It was like 237 or whatever they got, you know, and they would run and, and they could hit the streets and they could start selling by the, they could start dropping them and selling them by the morning, hitting up all the bookstop bookshops and they would be hot on the press. So I imagine a time when you would go into a bookstore and you would, you could walk in and you could see on the racks, all the latest mimeograph poetry, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, even when I went up to that Detroit last year to that really crazy famous bookstore, that's like three stories of books. And I asked her, I asked her, I was like, you, you know, and it's just like, huge building full of books. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any mimeograph poetry? And she's like, oh baby, you're looking for a needle in a haystack in this place. He was yeah. like, mimeograph poetry, that's that's really hard. That's a hard one. So this stuff, okay, has just become insanely expensive. Like insanely expensive. So I mean I understand part of that is because like you're saying there were smaller runs of things. Well but also was it just that people didn't think keep them too it's the same you know, it was it was yeah. an ephemeral media it was a sort of like a, a real particular kind of thing and people had them and they're gone and then they're there and they're gone and if you think there was 200 200 something that john sinclair did or ed sanders 200 or something in 1972 yeah. yeah how many of those are even around well and a lot of them people probably were just like okay this is cool but they threw them away or whatever they didn't really hold on to them because they, they were, were like, at, oh, that, there's somebody else going to have another one of these next week. Yeah. We're, uh, we're not, you know. Yep. It's disposable. Yeah. It's <laughs> disposable. It's just like, yeah, exactly. It was sort of just like an easy, cheap magazine, you know. So these guys, so these guys, have been, you know, have really did this, had this particular, you know, this era of stuff, right? And we're, of course, of course, Levy, Cleveland. And, uh, and all the, you know, the beats were into it and, you know, there was the Detroit artist workshop and there was, you know, all the folks in New York doing their things and 
I mean, everybody was doing it. It was a mimeo. It was it was a revolution. And then, well, yeah. And then, and then all the little political magazines in various cities, which is a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. Poetry magazines, political magazines. You know, uh, so it was part of this sort of like revolutionary spirit to be your own printer and to do your own thing. And it was, it was, it was. uh, It wasn't about the money, and it wasn't about you know. It was more just about you know, sort of revolutionary side of it, and it wasn't necessarily about, like, design and capitalism, you know, per se. Okay, so I think if you want to read this thing, we should read that, and then maybe before we cut to your interview, give a little intro to who John Sinclair is. But if you want to read this thing first. Okay, so this is what we got. We have a letter from, I mean, this is just so cool, from the laboratory of Thomas A. Edison. Orange, New York, December 13th, 1924. Okay, I've been... Giving some consideration to the problems presented by your letter on December 8th, I am wondering whether it is impractical to prepare an address in advance before the delivery of such address by any of the delegates. For instance, suppose the Prime Minister of England or the French Premier read an address to the conference. Could not copies of this address be prepared provisionally and given to the translators who could have it typed as fast as they translated it? Copies could have may be made for all the delegates by modern rapid processes, and each delegate could be given a copy in his own language. Thus, in a delegate address the meeting, he could read from the original copy made on a typewriter. At the time, the, the other delegates could be reading their translations, which had previously been supplied to them. By modern rapid process methods, the copies could be printed within an hour from the time the prime minister or premier had finished his dictation. All this easily could be done as it only means a sufficient number of typewriters and mimeograph duplicates. As to the debates, I do not, as uh, at present time, see any practical way, practical way to accomplish the objective stated in your letter. But still pretty cool, this idea of doing a translation through yeah. a system of and typing so, and mimeograph. But he was thinking about mimeo for this, that it might be possible to, yeah. to get those. Tra- that's, that is cool, yeah. Cool thing. So, a little bit earlier, you had some phone conversations with, John Sinclair, Sinclair. And, yep. and and we're going to hear some of that in just a moment here. Do you want to maybe just kind of give a little background about John? Well, John's an American poet, and he's a political activist. He's from Michigan. He lives in Michigan. Uh, he sort of has this really particular style of poetry with jazz. He is a blues scholar and a jazz scholar. Uh, I think he did a book uh, on Trembling Pillow Press about Coltrane. I think Coltrane. he did. I believe you're right about that. He also, in the in the 60s, he managed uh, the MC5, Detroit. And then, germane to our conversation here. There's a bunch of other stuff that John's done. Okay, he's, he's outspoken sort of counterculture guy on marijuana rights and all sorts of stuff. Which goes back to... Which brings him... Which is... Well, what I'm saying is... I'm trying to bring you back to the Mimeo revolution here. So, he was pretty pretty in the thick of all of that, right? Politically active, uh, counterculture guy, um, you know, using, you know, in in the shit, you know, in the ar- in the mimeograph army, you know? Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and, but in just like, you know, White Panthers and, you know, I mean, he was, he's, he's, he's a cool dude. He's done some cool stuff. He's... He's, you know, he's the kind of guy that you can see on Mardi Gras morning in New Orleans at the Working Man's Lounge, you know, down there on 2nd and Dryads. Yeah, yeah. And he's 
over in Amsterdam doing stuff. He's over here. They just had a big concert. So the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the revolution and all that stuff or the revolution, all that stuff. And I got an opportunity. I've been sort of just like writing John back and forth. I um, went to, went to a, a reading that John did over at Frenchie's gallery on Oak, Oak street. Um, I think Jamie Bernstein was there. And I think uh, there was a bunch of cats there. Actually, I, I'm pretty sure that Danny Kirk was there that night too. And there was a bunch of cats over there and it was John reading and a bunch of people playing. Uh, I actually have some photographs of that on my phone from, from All right, yeah. because the first photograph I How, took was of John. Was this? This is a little, uh, it's like a couple years ago. A couple years. Yeah. Ago. Maybe like beginning of 2016. Uh, but I got to catch up with them uh, on the phone um, last week. And it's a pretty fun. It's a pretty fun interview. I'm looking forward to hearing it. I haven't listened to it yet. Half of it's from him in the back. So, yeah, we might want to say... Listener discretion advice. <laughs> well, there's certainly... Yeah, that's not what I was going to say, but I, I don't even bother to tell people that. But I'm saying the uh, audio quality might be a little... Sure. A little lower than we're, we're used to. We're to do the best we can. But I think it's worth uh, worth putting up with that because I think the content's going to be some good stuff to, to hear. Yeah. All right, so here is the interview with John, John Sinclair. Sinclair. Is that you, John? Yeah. Hey, what's happening, brother? This is Joe. It is Joe, indeed. I'm sitting outside and taking my medicine and reading. <laughs> sounds like a good now. Sounds like an all right morning. How did your uh, how'd your concert go, man? Oh, it's great. Okay. It's fantastic. It's terrific. And I, now got you're... A, I got an encore. <laughs> oh, really? And now you're off to Sweden? Yeah, Monday for a week. Okay, that's great. I'm going to Amsterdam for three weeks. Oh, man. I I just, you know, I'm, I'm in New Orleans, which is just like this crown jewel of America still. But, you know, I got that little taste of Amsterdam, and I just, you know, I just, I just want to go back all the time. Yeah, yeah I know. So comfortable. <laughs> the, the relationship to the water over there? It, it, it's reminiscent of the relationship in New Orleans to water, you know? Oh, very much so. I felt kind of at home. I felt kind of, you know, like I had left New Orleans and arrived in another sort of uh, bizarro universe, uh, different universe. Outpost. Yeah. You know, now, now we just got to deal with the weed issue down here in Louisiana, which is a long, long ro- road to hoe, I guess. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been researching. I've been researching right now. In these in this old newspaper archives that I have, and uh, other archives at the Jazz Museum down at the at the old Mint on Esplanade, I found this first ever fifteen part expose on the marijuana trade in New Orleans from nineteen twenty six. Oh my goodness! And it's a fifteen part newspaper story, and let me tell you, man, it is awesome. It is so wow. it's so cool. I had to dig and dig and dig, and the only place I could find it was in the originals. Wow. So now, so now they're letting me go over there and document it and take photographs of it, and then I'm going to oh, tr- transcribe it all. Have mercy. Really good stuff. 1927, huh? Yeah. Ni- well, 1926, and here's the other the, – the, sometimes when you do primary research, it leads you to secondary research, right? So. right. right. So apparently in 26 or 27, when Armstrong was in Chicago, 
he wrote that song. It's an instrumental called Muggles. Right. And that's that's what this is all that's what this story that song is inspired by what happened in New Orleans. Cuz they oh, okay. they called the they called the weed dealers Muggles. Yeah, they called the weed Muggles. Yeah, exactly. Uh I'm finding it all over the newspapers in New Orleans for sure. Uh, From what I'm reading, it was just like a total black Hispanic you know, they were just they were just they were just trying to go after the blacks and the Hispanic dock workers and uh it was just like a race thing and it was a it was a whole uh game on on music and jazz and it wasn't just a prohibition thing cuz I'm learning that in New Orleans prohibition kind of never happened here. They never took took root. Yeah. But they but the NOPD and these newspapers they kind of they kind of had a story that they wanted them to do and they did this insane 15 part exposé on the entire on the entire trade and the entire thing you know down to like whose turf was whose turf and the 16 year old uh da- dealer who was in the quarter and all sorts of crazy tidbits <laughs> wow like to read that yeah my goal is to transcribe it and send it out to some people and then they can read what i've done you got to give it to jerry Brock. Okay, I'm I'm reading I'm reading I'm reading these books. I'm reading this one by Larry Solomon, this Reefer Madness book, and uh, another one called The History of Marijuana Prohibition in the United States by these two doctors, uh, Richard Bonney and Charles Whitebread. And and that one's that one's more of like a, it's a cool story behind this book. It was like Nixon had commissioned them to do this uh, big study on the history and uh you know of marijuana and they came to Nixon and they said hey well we think it should be legal and then Nixon shut it down and said you can't you absolutely cannot publish that study and then he got impeached and they published it anyway so the rest is history i guess so um but hey we're we're here yeah <laughs> you know when i'm in these archives and stuff and i read about old new orleans Man, there's so much stuff that hasn't changed in a hundred years. I mean, it's just yeah. like the people here are bitching about the same problems, the same things that have happened a hundred years ago. It's still like just part of the, the the social cultural crystallized fabric of the city, you know. What's great about New Orleans? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we same place. Yeah. Everywhere else is different. It's true. Well, John, we could. Look, we could talk about we could talk about all that that topics for a while. I just I wanted to get your get your uh, thoughts on today about specifically focusing on the mimeograph army and some of the stuff that you got into with that in relationship to you know printing and sort of like the movement and and why and why that whole why printing was so important and why mimeographs and all that was so important in that specific time period, you know, I mean, it's a whole different thing now with, with this, where like a digital meme on, on Facebook will, will take off and it's a better world. It's a better world, huh? Well, you don't have to mimeograph up what you want to say and put it in envelopes and address them and put stamps on them and mail them and have it get there three days later, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're talking like, that was your viral media. Environment. You 
you know, mimeographs are so important because you can get your hands on them and you can print the stuff yourself instead of having to pay a printer to do it on a letterpress because you didn't have any money. <laughs> but there was a mimeograph machine, maybe in the office or at school. You just had to get some paper and some ink and type up some stencils and then you could print whatever you wanted. So really it's that about... Was so it's about sort of the the access of that machine to anybody, and and how. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It wasn't you didn't have to be a skilled printer. You just had to strip on the fucking the, the stencil and put the ink in and set the thing and put your paper in and then you had five hundred sheets printed, you know. And you could hit the street. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like uh, this. Other people who made me graph things. This, yeah, you know, I mean, the, Levy the, was out there, right? I mean, Ted Sanders was the, you know, the prophet of mimeograph, and he's written very eloquently. Uh, I'm always so great about it, and I followed him. So Ed was so Ed of the Fugs, right? Yeah. So he was sort of the. So you're saying he was sort of uh, an an inspiration because he was doing it, right? And also explaining what it was all about. What was it all about? I mean, I, I know what's about well, a little bit. Little simple machine, and you could get the supplies fairly cheaply, and then you could do the work yourself instead of paying for the labor which is the costly part of any job you have set out. You can print your own book. You don't have to beg somebody to publish your book. Yeah, and what kind, I mean, what kind of stuff were you guys kicking out? I mean, it was mostly, it's, it's poetry. poetry and, you know. Rants about society. Rants. Jazz. I wrote about jazz you know these this generation of publications that y'all y'all made. You know this stuff is so ephemeral and expensive to buy now. I mean, I'm sure of that. I mean these. Yeah, these mimeograph books are like two hundred fifty bucks for an original levy. You know, five hundred bucks. You know. Yeah, well, it's the world of collectors. We can't afford to have the things that. You know, there's a poster for the John Sinclair Freedom Rally. I'd have to pay about $1,500 for it. (laughs) (laughs) We gave them away. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some of your, I saw some of your publications here. Uh, I was looking up just a little bit um, on, on eBay. And I was just, I was just, you know, hey, I wonder how much a mimeograph, uh, you know, edition Let's see here. Oh, here you go. Here's one of yours from uh, 1966. Maybe you remember this one. It's just, it's just Underground Mimeo Lit Journal, John Sinclair. Oh, Magazine Number Five, New York City, 1966. Signed by you. 165 bucks. Wow. Uh, 
uh, let's see here. Work. Here's another one just called work number three with, 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 uh, let's see here. I edited that. Magazine. You edited that. There you go. 137.50 for a, a mimeograph. <laughs> another one. Change. Oh my God. This one's going to blow your mind. How about this one? The fall winter 1965 edition of change. Uh, no, I guess numbers one and two. $1,650. Wow. What do you think about that? I mean, the fact that this ephemeral thing you did uh, 43, Forty-three it? years ago is, worth, is selling, well, is listed at $1,650. Oh, man, it's a symbol of what's wrong with our fucking society. You know, it's a rotten place. It doesn't make any sense. I could use 1600 right this minute. Yeah. It makes but me... I won't get it, you see. Totally. Not for what I did then, nor for what I'm doing now. <laughs> what should, should we get some Mimeos and put some new Sinclair work out? Oh, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> hey, I could... I got, I'm just a content producer now. I got a four... I got four Mimeos. I don't do any of the manufacturing and distributing or selling or promoting. Yeah. I just try to make shit, you know, and then hope that after I'm gone, somebody will catch on to it, you know. I got... I got four Mimeos down here in New Orleans and four waiting for you, waiting for me on, in, under, in a cupboard under my mom's basement uh, in Cleveland. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> a bunch of old paper and a bunch of ink and stencils. and So right that's now... Right now there's an entire new generation of mimeograph people popping up in Europe. Oh, I know. I was at a college in Holland where they had a mimeograph department. Was it was it uh was it Van Eck or in Maastricht or uh, not Maastricht? I never been there. Yeah. Or uh, was it up in Amsterdam or was it somewhere else? No, 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 out in the country somewhere. Out in the country somewhere. Yeah, I met I met this guy when I was there last year, uh, who has a he has a an, an old puzzle factory, a building where it used to be a puzzle factory, and he he has I swear to God he has. 500 mimeograph machines. Wow. He's just been collecting them since he was like a kid. Wow. And thousands of stencils and all the old mimeo journals and all tons of ink and tons of machines. And, you know, he has, um, you know, the mimeos in Europe were like more like the Gestetner type. Right. And then... And then, and then there was A.B. Dick, of course. Yeah. And he has the entire Gestetner family, like their entire business archives. And they gave him, you know, he has like a original Mimeos in the box still unopened, you know. So this guy's, his name's Erwin Block. He's been going around to these art schools and art institutions all around Europe. And he fixes mimeographs, and he teaches people how to use them, and he brings them a mimeograph, and he lets them, and he keeps it where at those at those art art agencies, so that they have their own mimeograph to use for their own projects. So he's kind of doing it. It's not quite catching on in New uh, in uh, in in the United States quite yet, 
Um, but you know, there, you know, there's a new, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's another machine called a risograph. Okay. There's another machine that they made. A company bought the Rico, bought the technology. And so it's like a mimeograph, but it's called a, a risograph. And it's almost the exact same thing. Except Rico, yeah, but it's uh, but the re- but the company or the the machine is called Riso R I S O. Oh, okay. And it's it. it's basically like an enclosed mimeograph with with a, like a photocopier top on the top of the machine to do to do to create the masters. So it's like a photocopy machine crossed with the with the mimeograph. That's all good. But, uh... Yeah, I'm sticking with digital. You're sticking with digital? Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, like, I mean, doing the type of risograph or mimeograph stuff that, like, you guys did in the 60s and 70s, I, can't, I guess kind of now it doesn't sort of have the same power that it did back then because, you know, like you said, somebody's uncle had a office with a mimeograph or the church basement had one or, you know, and you could, and it was about empowering anybody to do their book as opposed to having to pay a printer, you know, um, you can do it online. Right. Yeah. Like, and you don't have to print any, uh, tell me a little bit about like, the Detroit school up there with the uh, artists, was it the artist workshop? Right, artist workshop. Was that like, sort of like, like screen print, Mimeo, letterpress stuff? Or was it, you know, was it all like, was it more focused around the ideas of what you guys were doing and then just, just producing it, you know, as artists, just like going at it and doing additions and, and, you know, give me an idea of like the feeling of that scene. The artist workshop was a cooperative made of uh, poets, jazz musicians, writers, filmmakers, experimental filmmakers, photographers, painters, anybody who was creative. That was what it was for, to have a place of our own. And uh, since many of us were poets and writers, we wanted to publish our work, so we started the Artist Workshop Press to publish our work. Created three mimeograph magazines, work, which was poetry magazine, change, which was avant-garde jazz magazine, and the third one called Where, that was a left-wing literary avant-garde uh, critical magazine. <laughs> so what well, so we did these three things? Yeah, which that I mean that makes sense. You said the four three or four magazines that kind of came together for one, you know, it's kind of like, sounds like it's one mind to me, you know, like one, one full kind of meal of thought. Well, yeah, we wanted to do something and we did it. <laughs> and it was on the budget, on the cheap? Yeah, we didn't have no money. Right. It's like the best artists. Yeah. The richer, the richer the artist is. Uh, the less the less uh, motivation they have uh, to uh, to create out of uh, out of something that's real. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, so you're getting ready for your trip? 
You said Sweden for a week or 10 days or something? Been Sweden for a week and Amsterdam for three weeks. Oh, perfect. Amsterdam in, in this time of year, it's got to be great. It's nice, yeah. August. They're going to have a summer that comes in August. Okay. So that's their, that's their big part of the summer, right? Yeah. Sweet. Super sweet. Um, so yeah, so on your advice, you know, I'm going to go and, I'm going to go and, and get a copy of, uh, Fug You. Oh, good idea. And read about Ed, um, and, and his, and his play in the game. And, uh, I guess maybe if I have any questions, I can just email him, you know. Um, he's still in upstate New York? Yeah, Woodstock. Okay, cool. Yeah, it might be cool. It might be cool to talk with him even for a little bit and just get some, you know, get some more thoughts on the matter. Well, he was our leader. Yeah. Um, okay, so I had, you know, look, we were, so we were rapping about Mimeo, sort of its particular role in the world, and then we, and then we talked a little bit about, you know, this idea of the, the price of this stuff now and what that, you know, what that says about our economy and all that. Um, I guess, you know, transitioning sort of into another thought that I was having in, in our, like, in our media landscape now, you know, like, it's kind of crazy, like, McLuhan, McLuhan kind of saw this all happening, you know, um, just, like, how fast media is moving, and how that makes sense, and how, like, you know, or is it, do you think it's possible, I guess here's the question, is, like, do you think it's possible in an age of Trump, for poetry to have a voice and to speak out and to and to have an impact, you know, poetry of resistance, you know, not any more than the last fifty years. Yeah, I mean, so you just think it's it just is what it is. I mean, there's not like we don't. It's like poetry doesn't isn't a, isn't really a. I don't know, like it. It seems like it's less. It seems like it has like less potential for resistance than it did back in the sixties. I don't know. I don't know either. It has all the potential it ever had. So it's like a so it's just a constant and it, and it's what each generation does with it? Yeah. I mean because right now they are looking for too much poetry. They got that mother goose poetry in the rap record. They're happy with that. That's all they want. Well, that's an interesting thought that, like, the one of the things that bothers me about the poetry scene today, which is whatever that means, because it's like it's different in every community. But the idea of turning poetry into a competition, it just like takes away the power of poetry or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. We have the same problem with weed. Which one is the best? It's all good. Yeah, you're right. It is all <laughs> it is all good. Okay, so like back to that question, I guess. 
is there is there any I mean is there any better form of resistance right now? It's like been so hard for me as like a poet and a printer, and like trying to figure well, out. I don't really have any idea. My idea is that when they have an election, you vote for the right person. Okay, so they didn't do that. Okay, a lot of people on our side didn't vote, and that's why we lost. Okay, so that so that actually brings me to and my. A lot of people hated the idea of a woman for president that bad than a Negro. Is it important to vote still after we saw what just happened? Is it more important to vote than ever? Oh, yeah. You know, who didn't show up to vote this time around? That's how they get these people. They vote them in. George W. Bush, they voted him in twice. This asshole. You know? That's how we got Obama. We voted him in. It's the way democracy works. So the... Uh, now they're talking about Trump may suspend the election in 2020 to make sure that only qualified voters would vote and 52% of Republicans endorse this concept. So that's the kind of country we're living in. Well, that's just like... The reality TV show is the president. You know, the Secretary of Defense is named Mad Dog. <laughs> you know... Yeah. The lady from Amway is the education secretary. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like, I feel like, I feel like the discouragement, you know, like there's like, a, there was active discouragement away from voting and like everyone. Well, yeah, they don't want you to vote because I'll tell you one thing, the right wing always votes. They vote every time. And what it's a, only our side that toys with the goofy idea that maybe it isn't worthwhile. Uh, Republicans never wonder if it's worthwhile. Well, they get out the vote. Why do all the progressive city dwellers just don't show up at the polls this year? I mean, that's what it seemed. That's what it seemed like. You know. I no, I said. Uh, I said it seemed like the progressive city dwellers didn't really like show up at the polls this year. And you think it's because they literally couldn't fathom having a woman president and just decided well, to know. I'm not a psychologist, but opt I mean, out. that's one of the reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. White men hate women like almost as bad as niggers, you know. Well, I mean, the, Repu- the, the Democratic Party threw a coup d'etat on Bernie Sanders. <clears throat> I mean, that's just like... You know, you think Sanders were to beat Trump? No. You don't think so? I don't know. It depends on who got the most votes, you see. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. It's like a baseball game, you know? The one wins, it gets some more runs than the other one. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Yeah. Should there be any, I mean, should there be any limits to what poetry can, you know, I mean, it's like such a loaded question, Absolutely but like. Absolutely not. Is there a po- no limit. Is there a political impact still? Can there still be a political impact of poetry on... I mean, can... I have no idea. Yeah. It's up to the public. I mean, like... Where are they going to get it first? I had... I talked with... Is it going to be on TV? No. Is it going to be on Fox News? No. Is 
It seems like, you know, it's it's like there's like this thing that's happening in social media right now where it's like this whole uh, reward based system of like I post the most banal, banal, boring, cursory bullshit poem and it gets, you know, 950 likes on Instagram or like and people are looking at that as a judgment of I don't know what they're looking at it as a judgment of, but it's like it's like I don't even care. <laughs> That's a great answer. I don't know what they're doing with that shit. I don't follow popular culture. I don't watch television. I don't watch movies. I don't want no parts of it. Yeah. I don't like it. It's boring. It's lame. It's stupid. Well, I, that's that's a. I mean, that's a fantastic answer, honestly. As a non-TV watcher, as a as myself, and not dipping too much into popular culture. I guess I'm guilty of social media, which, you know, is like... Well, it's just posting. It's just people putting on what they think. You know, big deal. Good for them. What's it got to do with me? Yeah. Nothing, right? In the end. it's. Pardon? I said in the end, it's like, it's like more... It's more ephemeral, uh, uh, ephemeral of a media, you know, than printing a broadsheet. You know what I mean? Because it's like... It's there on the screen oh, one. Yeah, you put the broadsheet on your wall. You see, you see it every day. Yeah. Posters also. Do you think poets still should shoulder the role of pushing the envelope of language and, you know. I think you should do whatever they want. There's no rules in poetry. You write whatever you want. I mean, I. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. It's like, it's like... You see, the thing is, you can do whatever you want, but people don't want to do anything. <laughs> That's your bottom line. They want to consume this horse shit on television, movies, and social media. So that's what they do. A, a friend of mine feels that all that is, it's what the, what the symptom of that is, is that we're lacking leadership. He thinks it all comes down to... Uh, a lack of leadership in this generation. I don't know anything about that. I don't need much leadership. I <laughs> <get> a brain. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I think of like the way that the way that language and academia, like that academia is prescribing, is like a very prescribed form of. Uh, That's what they're all about. That's why you have to avoid them. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a trap. Because what it does is that whole style of teaching and learning, it actually takes away the potential for your mind to expand and be, course, be dangerous. Of course, the whole idea of the educational system they got to prevent you from thinking. Right. But is that, has that changed any? I mean, do you think that that's changed any in the last 40 years? Like, is that how it's always been? Of going. Yeah, it was horrible when I went to college. Like the idea of going to school for creative writing is just years ago. Yeah. I mean the idea of going to school for creative writing, it just seems like that seems like ridiculous. Well it is. Well Joe, I'm about to get out of the tub and go have breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, that sounds great, man. I, I look, look, John, I appreciate this a lot. I'm glad I got to talk to you a little bit about Mimeo and poetry and stuff. And, uh, it's, uh, it's been, it's, you're, you're, you're an inspiration to me. So it's like, you know, it's been a great thing. Um, well, enjoy your day and, uh, take it easy. Safe travels, John.